it really sounds like there should be a threshold. Where would you put the threshold between when the risk of bringing law enforcement in is perhaps greater than the benefit of bringing them in? Well, if you're running a meth lab, um, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, right. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Cyber Guys podcast, the cybersecurity podcast for everyone. My name is Andrew Valencia, and as always, I'm joined by the affable, the prodigious, the absolutely fantastic Mike Hill. How's it going, man? <laughs> After that, I don't know, but all right, we'll take it. <laughs> I'm working Hello, on my everybody. intros. I'm working on my intros. Uh, <laughs> hey, we have another special guest uh, on the podcast today. Yes, we do. A good friend of mine, David Aaron. You know... There are so many aspects of cybersecurity, and one of the areas that we haven't talked about enough is cyber law. So we have a good friend of mine who happens to be uh, not just an attorney, but someone who has actually been a government attorney prosecuting cyber criminals and dealing with all sorts of aspects of uh, cyber law. So welcome to the podcast, David. How are you doing? Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Thank you guys for having me on. Looking forward to this. Yeah. So just to give the audience a little bit of a background, um, not your whole resume, but just a little bit about some of the things you've been uh, working with. Sure. I mean, a long time ago, I started out life as a uh, local prosecutor in Manhattan. Uh, I moved from that into the world of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. Um, so doing uh, classified wiretaps in national security cases. Um, I moved on from that to prosecuting computer crime at the Department of Justice in the computer crime and intellectual property section. Um, and then I went from there into the counter espionage section, which is on the national security side, a combination of investigating and prosecuting spies and investigating and prosecuting a malicious cyber activity conducted by nation states instead of regular criminals. So I did that for a little more than 20 years, uh, all total. And then back at the end of February of this year, I, uh, I finally left the government and I joined a law firm. Oh, man. Now, that's just an exciting intro. I'm sure the uh, our audience is already going crazy. But half of what you said tells us one important thing. There's a lot you can't tell us. <laughs> that is correct. That is correct. There's no one to bleep it or put a blue dot. Um, so uh, I've just got to watch what I say. That's true. All right. So we'll, we'll just keep it light, keep it nice and easy. You know, uh, we've been talking on our show a bit about APTs, the advanced persistent threats and nation states that are that are the boogeyman that everyone really is most afraid of when it comes to the Internet. Uh, so you had actually had to do a pretty big indictment recently, didn't you? Before you uh, left That's there. correct. When, right before I left, um, I, I had my last big indictment, uh, which remained under seal, actually, until until after I left. I um, mean, it was one of the two uh, recently unsealed indictments of Russian actors who were using the Internet, using cyber means to attempt to infiltrate critical infrastructure, in this case, uh, energy companies in the United States. And the interesting thing here was, you know, we're all familiar with those incidents from a while ago where a foreign nation state actor might infiltrate a company to get records or to get information or to get data. But here it seemed pretty clear that the goal uh, and the attempt was to be able to cause physical effects um, and not just shutting down a plant either, but causing explosions, causing damage, release of hazardous gases. And that's what made that case um, particularly frightening to me. 
yeah, frightening as an understatement. That sounds horrifying. You know, it's funny. Uh, it reminds me of our conversation with Jared about uh, hybrid, um, hybrid warfare. I mean, sorry, hybrid uh, warfare. Uh, if you guys didn't check out that episode, uh, be, be sure to go back and, and see our episode with my good friend uh, Jared Ross, uh, ex Special Forces guy who's been uh, working on the other end. But isn't it interesting? So uh, dealing with the, the threats to critical infrastructure, th- there are some new rules um, for organizations that, that that work in that space, aren't there? That's correct. Um, Congress recently enacted uh, an update to the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Act called, uh, well, it's abbreviated CERCIA, and it, it's, a, it's a cybersecurity law aimed specifically at critical infrastructure. Um, and it, it's going to take a little while to unroll, but it, it highlights a couple of things. We can go into the details of the law and what to expect from it. But there are already a few regulatory moves that the government has taken uh, through, of all things, the Transportation Security Administration. Uh, they rolled out new rules recently requiring not just cyber reporting, but even some affirmative cybersecurity requirements for freight rail, for passenger rail, and not surprisingly, for pipelines, and you can probably predict when the pipeline rule came out. Um, so there are already robust reporting requirements there. They're just kind of all over the place. And so this this new law is designed to, to really kind of bring together what are the standards going to be for critical infrastructure companies to have to report in terms of uh, cyber threats and cyber attacks. You know, that, that's really interesting because, you know, the the reputational risk of organizations being hacked is sometimes such a deterrent where they just want to sweep it under the rug, pretend like it didn't happen, hide it in some cases, even when there are, you know, ancillary, uh, um, you know, adjacencies uh, in the overall critical infrastructure that could be still vulnerable by their, you know, holding on to this information. So that's really interesting that they're trying to uh, uh, clamp down on uh, underreporting or even evading uh, their, their their requirements for, for exercising due care. Um, to, just to keep things on a on a, on a simple level, um, if you're an organization and 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 you're you know hosting something that is of value or importance uh, to the nation at large, uh, just at a very superficial level, what are the basic requirements? What does the public expect, or should the public expect, from organizations, private sector companies that touch things that are critical to all of us well when it comes to critical infrastructure you know that's that's a very broad category there are 16 sectors that the government identified as you know being that so important to everyone else that it's not you know you go beyond being a private business and you're you're critical your critical infrastructure they, they the name says it all um so I, what where we're heading is the public has the right to expect certain things. One is certainly more transparency about what's happening. If you're an energy company, if you're in healthcare, if you're in public transportation, finance, and you're getting hit by cyber criminals, by cyber activists, or by nation states, your customers and the people who rely on you have a right to know. You know, you've got a right to know if your water company is is vulnerable. Did something happen there? Um, so a lot of the current uh, requirements really have to do with transparency and reporting. Fewer of them uh, for now actually prescribe levels of security. And I think it's, it's foreseeable, especially looking at, at the TSA pipeline requirements, it's foreseeable that a step after 
requiring disclosures could very well be a step um, imposing some kind of compliance requirements with cybersecurity, uh, having having a certain level of cybersecurity proficiency. David, I, I imagine having uh, this new law apply to 16 different sectors of uh, within the private sector. Uh, what it, this is going to apply to a lot of companies that are not necessarily used to the requirement to report to an outside organization, let alone uh, the federal government. So aside, outside of compliance with the new law, which is understandably going to take a while to, to, to enforce, what incentives are there for companies to actually go ahead and report uh, attacks within a timely manner? I mean, it's, it's a great question. It's one that in, in government, we certainly talked about a lot. Um, before I get uh, outside of the, the legal incentives, I do want to mention that the Securities and Exchange Commission uh, has kind of moved ahead even of this statute and put out some cybersecurity requirements of its own in a proposed rule that will become a final rule fairly soon. So it only applies to publicly traded companies, but it's not limited to critical infrastructure. So any publicly traded companies will have to do similar reporting. And, and this is an interesting thing, they're going to have to report publicly um, what kind of cybersecurity expertise they have on their board and in their management. And so that means as an investor, uh, the SEC is assuming that as an investor, you will want to know what is the cybersecurity posture and vulnerability of the company that you're going to invest in, and you'll factor that in. So that, I don't know if that's exactly an incentive, because if you don't report, uh, they're going to come after you. But, um, you know, there, there, there are incentives uh, in terms of reporting to, for example, law enforcement. Uh, you know, no one wakes up in the morning, um, at least outside of government, and thinks, I hope I deal with the FBI today, right? Um, it, not, nothing good has happened <laughs> if it's time for you to deal with the FBI. I mean, they're, they're great people, and I, I honestly miss working with them every day. But, um, you know, like prosecutors, they show up when there's a problem. Um, and so, yeah, if you've been hit with a, a ransomware demand, or if there appears to be malware on your system, or you're noticing uh, suspicious traffic, perhaps outbound, that your firewall is not stopping, um, what are the incentives to engage with law enforcement? Um, I don't mean to take this as a complete endorsement of dealing with, with law enforcement or of engaging proactively with law enforcement. Sometimes it's the right thing to do, sometimes it isn't. But in balance, what I have found is the days of working with the FBI being an entirely one-way street in terms of information exchange, I won't say those days are over, but those days are not as consistent as they used to be. The FBI can share indicators of compromise um, a lot of the time, a victim might have one piece of information that fits in with a lot of information the FBI has that you know, maybe they can't share back, but it contributes to the FBI's overall picture of what's happening. And sometimes they can actually do something about it. They can have a disruption action. Um, even if there's no arrest, they might make an arrest. They might seize funds. Perhaps they can return the funds. We saw that uh, in Colonial Pipeline. Um, these things aren't going to happen every single time. And I'm not going to say that if you get hit with ransomware, every time you call the FBI, they'll have the key. But they might know something that could help you um, as you decide what your next steps are going to be. So in addition to helping the country in general, when you deal with them and, and you come to them with the cyber uh, incident, there is a pretty decent chance they'll be able to offer you something, even if they're not solving your whole problem. And, and I'd imagine that the I'd imagine that the cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency is wrapped up into all of this and having 
those additional resources with the investigation is more likely to lead to a successful outcome if you are the victim of a ransomware attack. Yeah, I think it remains to be seen how well CISA and the FBI are going to work together. Um, you know, uh, as probably a lot of your listeners know, when DHS was created, there was built-in tension with the FBI. And uh, for a while, I think the model has been thinking about, you know, DHS is maybe like uh, the fire department and the FBI more as the as the police, um, you know, where Circea doesn't really, they're not supposed to be investigating so much as synthesizing and, and protecting. Um, but there is a lot of overlap between the two organizations' perceptions of their own mission. Um, and uh, I, I hope that there will be a lot of cross-pollination and, and cooperation um, at least on the analytical side and the sharing of indicators side. Um, certainly the FBI can benefit from some of the expertise in CISA. Um, and, you know, the Bureau has also spent a lot of time building its own in-house expertise. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, the government is deepening in this area. Let, let's probe that a little deeper, though. Uh, some of your background with the uh, spy hunting uh, and the, the Economic Espionage Act and that kind of stuff. Uh, what can you tell us about just, just the process for tracking down and targeting and building a case uh, against you know, a spy or someone involved in you know, uh, even economic espionage? Sure. And it's, it's interesting because really when we talk about information security, the threats can be from the outside via cyber or the inside uh, versus a person. So in some ways it's, it's fairly similar. I can tell you there's a case um, that I had, you know, this, this is public, of a guy who was an employee at a software company. Um, and the software company had some controls. You don't, you know, to, to make uh, your, your intellectual property account as a trade secret such that it's protected by criminal law, you don't have to have perfect controls over it. You just have to have reasonable controls over it. And th the company did. Uh, the gentleman um, decided they were really great trade secrets and, and he could probably do great things with them. So he uh, took them and uh, in another country, uh, he, uh, I mean, it's, it's public, he, it was in China. Um, he started developing his own version of this code and uh, started kind of quietly marketing it uh, around and looking for help. Um, he didn't market it quietly enough because uh, someone referred him to some undercover uh, FBI agents who did, I mean, honestly, watching them do their undercover work, I, I, was, I was blown away by how good a job they did they, they uh, gave him a story that prompted him to come to the United States to kind of show off how great his code was. Um, and, you know, he did that in a hotel room that was completely wired uh, for sound and, and video. Um, and so because he had stolen a trade secret, you know, this, this property of a company that gained economic value by virtue of not being public, and he was trying to make his own business, he was trying to make money from it, that counted as theft of trade secrets under under federal law, which is a pretty serious felony. But um, it was very complex code. And, and you would imagine only a few big customers would really know what to do with with code this sophisticated. So the undercovers asked him, um, you know, you think you would ever sell this to a government? And he said, would I watch this? And he demonstrated that he had already been engaging in that. Um, which bumped him from theft of trade secrets to economic espionage, which a lot of the same elements as theft of trade secrets. You're stealing a trade secret, something that gains value by being kept secret. 
but you're doing it for the benefit of a foreign country instead of doing it uh, for your own financial gain or in addition to doing it for your own financial gain. So he got hit with both. Um, so in that case, you know, a lot of the time, the person who stole the secret gets caught because they're trying to do something with it. Um, in a lot of the uh, like a media leak type case where someone with a security clearance steals classified information and brings that to the media. I mean, the very purpose of that is to is to get it publicized. And so sometimes when you learn that a secret has been compromised, but you don't know who did it, you have an unknown subject case, an unsub case, and you start looking at who had access to this information. Um, you know, if we know how the information was transmitted, uh, you know, was it printed out? Okay, so who had access and who printed it out? Um, and you start looking at maybe some more subjective uh, factors, uh, you know, different things about someone's personality or behavior that might make them more likely uh, to have decided to betray their their vow of secrecy and and hand this information over. And the same the same is often true in an espionage case. Um, sometimes you find someone who has information that they're looking to sell to a foreign government and they're accidentally talking to the FBI. There's a recent case uh, in the news about that. Um, and, uh, and sometimes you see through certain means that a foreign government has received information. Um, and that's how you know it's been compromised. And it really is looking at access to that, who had access to it in the relevant time period, um, you know, who was motivated uh, to do something wrong with it, and maybe whose behavior changed. Um, you know, there are a lot of insider threat indicators we could talk about sudden wealth, uh, changes in behavior, coming into work at odd times. Uh, that could be a whole other podcast. Yeah, no doubt. Well, this, is, this is really fascinating stuff. You know, I, I've, I've seen a couple of instances where uh, it did work backwards like that. Uh, our own intelligence operations made it apparent that they had uh, this trade secret and then we had to reverse engineer and figure out, okay, how did they get it? Right, right. <laughs> and, and look at those IOCs that way. So that, that's really interesting stuff. Wow, I tell you, we could go down a rabbit hole on that. We don't want, don't, don't want to get too deep, though. So, so let, yeah. let's bring it back to a, a more consumer level. <laughs> so, sure. in dealing with law enforcement, let's say you're, you're you're a company or you're you're an individual that has substantial substantial um, IT assets that are potentially at risk, uh, and maybe you get hacked. You know, what, what are some of the considerations and 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 uh, law enforcement engagement ideas uh, that that they should know? It's it's a great question, and it's something that everyone should be planning for. Um, and one thing that I do at my at my new job is we help uh, we help clients come up with policies in advance, so they're not trying to figure out the playbook in the middle of the game. Um, I mean, and I don't say this purely because I am outside counsel, but the first thing you need to do is you need to get outside counsel. Um, you want if you're if you're in the middle of a breach, um, you know you are under a lot of stress. You're being pulled in a lot of different directions, and you know, you guys probably have seen it in your own work. There is an emotional impact. Um, I've been the victim of cybercrime. I can't even count how many times in my personal and professional life. Um, and it, it is emotional in addition to being something that logistically you have to deal with. So outside counsel can help kind of navigate all of this. Um, you first, you want to you want to make sure that you're dealing with the right people. Sometimes you might end up with multiple law enforcement agencies either available to you or responding. And, you know, I, I have my own biases, but I think in a particular circumstance, depending on geographically where you are, the nature of the cybercrime, um, 
someone who's familiar with that arena might say, you know what, um, if it is up to us, which isn't always, maybe we'll go with FBI, maybe we'll go with Secret Service, maybe we'll go with locals. And then what kind of information and access to your systems do they want? Um, you don't have to be a bad guy to be nervous about law enforcement having unfettered access to your entire business. Um, they might, I mean, there's, there's plenty of things to break in a network by accident. Um, there's plenty of ways that law enforcement can interfere with the ordinary operations of a business just by virtue of being present and asking questions and unplugging things, you know, just taking, taking people offline. So it's good to get a sense of the scope of what they need. Um, and then there's going to be stuff that you don't want to expose. Um, one example of that would be, say you had a cybersecurity assessment done uh, the year before, and a cybersecurity company came in, perhaps under privilege because they were retained through outside counsel, and they did a big review of what was wrong with your network. Um, now, I could see why law enforcement might be interested in seeing that. That might help them understand what happened. But it also might not be something that you want to turn over because if you do, you may be risking the privileged nature of that uh, of that report. And that report might be something that people who might be about to sue you would really like to get their hands on. And if it's under privilege, you know, they're going to have a lot harder time getting a judge to make you turn that over than if you just willy nilly turned it over to anyone who showed up. So that's a very important legal question. Are there any protections for, for businesses for privileged information that is required to be reported? Um, but, you know, other other competitors may actually want to get their hands on, um, whether it be through, you know, like a Freedom of Information Act request. Um, is yeah, there anything so, built into some of the new the laws that are coming out that, that protect that? Yeah, the there are provisions in some of the newer laws that say, you know, sharing this information does not affect any legal privilege. And that is a really good thing to include. Um, but, you know, that's that's at a macro level. Like when you share information with CISA, um, you know, if, if there's that carve out in the statute, like that that's at that macro level. But if, if uh, say you're not in critical infrastructure, say you're not even a publicly traded company and you're not under one of these obligations and the state police or the FBI or the Secret Service comes to investigate, cybercrime and you've got sitting on your desk an underprivileged cybersecurity assessment from a year ago there's no automatic protection for that privilege if you voluntarily hand that over uh, to the police now perhaps and this is where you really need a lawyer in the moment but you know perhaps if they compel you to turn it over you have an argument later that the privilege is still there but you're not going to know until that's litigated but I always found, or I said I, I frequently found, that what law enforcement actually needs is often not the privileged part of, of, of the information that's sitting on your desk. And so really an important thing to be thinking about or to be having someone think about when you're dealing with law enforcement in those really early stages is there's stuff I want to protect and there's stuff that you really need. How much overlap is there really? Because in the moment you think you want to protect everything, and in the moment they think they want everything, but when you really pull back, that Venn diagram you know, really starts to have less overlap, and you can you can cooperate a lot without endangering your interests and without compromising the investigation. 
you know, that's really interesting for cybersecurity professionals who work in collaboration with, with firms like yours. Uh, the idea of maybe even generating the security report that's already bifurcated in a way of super sensitive and, and not as sensitive and, and maybe working with counsel like that could pr produce documents and artifacts that wouldn't necessarily uh, put at risk the most sensitive uh, secrets. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the, the dividing line can be between data and analysis. Um, you know, the data is the data. Uh, but, you know, it's the opinions, it's the analysis, it's the what do we do next and where where's our exposure? That's the stuff that um, that you will want to protect. And, uh, you know, uh, even in the, there's a multi-state litigation involving the uh, the Marriott breach where the same uh, I think it was the same company had done some of some of the left of boom and right of boom work. And that made it a little confusing where the privilege stopped um, because, you know, there's privilege doesn't apply to everything. And it kind of depends on, you know, what what you're doing and why you're doing it. Um, and these things can get muddled and lead to the loss of privilege when everyone really thought they were doing their job right. It really sounds like there should be a threshold. Where would you put the threshold between when the risk of bringing law enforcement in is perhaps greater than the benefit of bringing them in? Well, if you're running a meth lab, um, <laughs> sorry. Uh, sorry. Yeah, right. That's probably still a good idea to bring them in. But um, no, I, I think it's not so much the risk of bringing law enforcement in. I think it's it's the risk of throwing caution to the wind when when talking to them. Um, and I, I think, I, you know, I, I can't think of a, a great reason to just say I'm not talking to you. Period. Um, but I think you just want to speak carefully and I'm sorry to dodge the question. Um, but no, that's, no, no, that's exactly what, what, what we, we needed the audience to hear. Call the police, but also call an attorney like, like Dave. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I'd, I'd imagine that, uh, as a lot of these laws are, are, are rolled out and they're actually enforced a lot more organizations in, in both in the private sector are going to need to take some sort of preventative measures, um, not in the case that they, uh, to, to, to limit the amount they get hacked, but to enhance their uh, fluency in cybersecurity. Uh, I'd imagine that's where uh, a lot of companies would actually turn to you and your, and your firm, right? So that they would turn to a, a lawyer who has some type of uh, expertise with regards to applicable cyber laws um, so that they're not completely out in the wind or relying solely on their in-house IT. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, it depends on, on the type of entity. You know, if it's a hospital, there's a pretty good chance that their general counsel's office knows HIPAA pretty well. Um, but they may need some support when it comes to um, kind of the higher end uh, applications of HIPAA privacy requirements in an electronic environment. And, you know, a, a law firm that does this all the time has seen things go right and seen things go wrong in all kinds of environments across the country. And so, so yeah, so we can help on the kind of uh, preparation side in terms of getting your cybersecurity policy, your privacy policy, your notification policy, having vendors lined up uh, for either evaluation or for response. And again, all that can be done under privilege, which, which can be a very valuable thing um, if someone comes asking for your information. Uh, so, 
yeah, there's, there's a lot of kind of getting everything, getting all the ducks in a row that we do. And then in the breach, as it were, um, you know, during the incident, having someone who knows you, who knows your network, knows your people, knows whether you want the, the fancy uh, company to come in, do you want the budget company to come in, you know, it knows every, knows your whole plan because uh, they, they wrote it with you. Um, have them there to get you through that breach. So you're worrying about your people, you're worrying about your systems, you're not having to worry about the stuff that outside counsel uh, can take off your plate. And then, yeah, I mean, if regulators come asking questions, if state attorneys general come asking questions, uh, civil litigants, um, you know, again, you, you've got your outside counsel to deal with all of that. And, uh, you know, we're, we're very specialized um, and we have really good relationships with remediators uh, and, and security companies. And that can be that can be a nice package to have just right on the shelf when you need it. So from your experience being on both sides of the fence, uh, both in the private and the public sector, uh, is is this an underserved area right now? Uh, having lawyers with experience or at least education with cybersecurity? You know what? I, it's interesting because I uh, I graduated from law school in 2000 um, and we didn't have national security law courses. We didn't have cyber law courses. Um, it was kind of quirky stuff that, that a couple of people would go study. And when I see the people that we've been hiring who have advanced law degrees in uh, cybersecurity or privacy, um, additional certifications, it's really impressive to see how much the field has taken off. I, I not being self-serving when I say that there's not, there are, there are more people out there with, the education than there are with the experience. Um, and I'm very respectful of the specialized education that people can get. And they will think of things that I didn't learn, you know, on the job. Um, you know, they, they have a, sometimes a broader view. Uh, but I think, I think it's good to combine that with people who've had, you know, dirty hands experience. Um, as, as dirty as lawyers' hands get, but uh, you know, <laughs> don't tell yourself. Yeah, yeah, that's another <laughs> podcast, also. I think, um, yeah. but but uh, you know, people who have who have been in the trenches, um, you know, who have uh, gotten subpoenas out, who you know, gotten search warrants out, and worked with the returns, and looked at what's going on in people's networks, gotten agents who can tell them, you know, when they're wrong about stuff. Um, I, I think that's important to have, and so. I think there's there's less of a deep bench when it comes to people with that, that practical hands-on experience. Yeah. No so doubt. how does one going go from being just getting a, a, a JD uh, and then transitioning that into cyber security or prosecuting cyber crimes? Do you take, I'm assuming there are specialized courses at a lot of universities, but you mentioned certifications and all that. And this is a totally selfish question on my part because I'm fascinated by this. So how does, how do you, what does the funnel look like from someone that goes from like law school uh, all the way to where you're at now? Yeah. So, you know, my, my hiring experience is mostly from, from government. And, uh, you know, I was, I was most of the time at, at Maine DOJ, Maine Justice, which is, which is the headquarters. Um, and who we were hiring directly in there, it was it was a mix. There were some people who had gotten um, kind of practical law firm litigation experience or practical uh, like U.S. Attorney's Office or DA's Office prosecution experience, and they were adding a cyber component. You know, just like you know, if you're a drug prosecutor, you don't think you have to be a pharmacist. You know, if you're a gun prosecutor, you don't think you have to be a, an armor. Um, and so 
any prosecutor, any litigator thinks that the subject matter is just something you learn for the case. Um, you know, and, and you're so awesome that you're going to do a great job no matter what. So we, we hire plenty of people like that. And then sometimes there's someone who has kind of come up with a lot of those uh, specialized courses in law school. Um, maybe they have some engineering background, um, you know, either before, yeah, probably before law school, if they, they you know, majored or got a master's in electrical engineering or something like that. Um, we get some people who actually were system administrators or, you know, worked on networks before going to law school. Um, and it's really interesting to see the perspective that they bring because uh, they actually do know what they're talking about, you know, on their first day, um, you know, which is some of us have to fake it for a little while. Um, so, so there's a really wide range of, um, of ways you can do it. And I think that if you're interested in the field, your interests are going to guide you to whatever kind of certification or education is, is most appropriate, as long as you make an effort to learn about what's out there. And that's, that's fascinating. I tell you, this has been a great conversation and, and we didn't even talk about, you know, uh, liability <laughs> issues and, and torts. It was still a good conversation when it comes to like, uh, you know, when you're a custodian of somebody else's privacy data, yeah. you know, that kind of stuff. So we got to get you back one of these days uh, <laughs> to talk about that other stuff. <laughs> um, great having you, uh, David. I, I really just great seeing you again. It's, it's been a little while. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad. I, I'm sorry it took you starting a podcast for us to reconnect like this, but uh, yeah, no doubt. Keep, keep it going. This, this is this is great. Uh, appreciate appreciate you coming in. Great, thanks, guys. That's it for now. Listen, if you like what you saw here, don't forget to like and subscribe to the channel. If you're new here, be sure to check out our past episodes. We have so much more in store for you coming down the pipe. I'm so excited. We have a Cyber Guys React video coming out soon and some more short form bits that we're gonna be putting out there detailing a little bit about the more interesting side of cybersecurity history. Again, I wanna thank our special guest, David Aaron, Senior Counsel at Perkins Coie, serving both the New York and DC offices. Thanks again, David. I cannot wait to have you back on the show. So for the Cyber Guys, I'm Andrew Valencia. And I'm Michael Hill. Stay safe, be secure, be sure. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.